carnitas, bro, so good. Dude, for real, though. I haven't had carnitas that succulent in quite a long time. I've just felt like every element of the food was fantastic. Yeah. And by the way, we're talking about Scott's wedding here, the food yes. vendor that they, they got. My God, they were on point. Yes. The nuptials, the, the niptuals, if you're certain niptuals. Nuptuals, if you're proper, but I'm oh. not going to make any stick with jump, niptuals. Uh, judgments. Niptual. <laughs> it's now forever niptuals. Niptuals. Yes. Fits, fits better. But dude, I don't know, man. <laughs> I was fucking exhausted, bro. You know, like I didn't sleep like two days prior to the flight. Tell me about it, man. I put the ceremony on my back, you bro. Did. You were carrying everything. For, literally. For real. Every minute there was something. But that's that's how it goes, right? I mean, you know, if you want to do if you want something done right. Do it yourself. You gotta freaking do it yourself, dude. Do it yourself. Throw yeah, it on the you back. Do it yourself. Do a little hunch over and just carry it yourself, man. Carry the weight of the world on your shoulders. Absolutely. Best way. But tell us, uh, how was the honeymoon? Because everyone wants oh. to know. Because I kind of talked you up, like Scott's. You know, last week I was like, Scott's had his honeymoon. You know, we're gonna have him tell us some good stories. So that's true. Now you're on the spot. Man. That's true. That's true. Uh, stories. Well, you know, there's a few of those stories that you know what happens on the honeymoon stays on the honeymoon. You know what I mean? Like what? Um, bro, no, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> you can't. Don't try to Jedi mind trick one? me. Yeah. Oh. Nice Damn try. It. it usually works. Uh, just it for works those of you listening, of the time. it usually works, but not this time. Damn it. Um, don't want to start off on the wrong foot, you know. But honestly, like the adventure part of it, I mean, I'm just serious moment here. Serious. This is, let's all put our serious hats on. Uh, the adventure part of it was fantastic. The hikes, the weather, the people, the food, mm. the animals. Yeah. Mm. Uh, it was all great. Dining on a rooftop, sun's going down, silhouettes of the Cascades in the background. Wow. Come on. Come on, man. Come on. That sounds fantastic, bro. I'm, I'm glad for you guys. Went down in a lava tube, 50 feet underground, just checking stuff out. People used to chill in there, just like making their illegal booze. Oh, really? I swear I could still smell the spirits. Not mm. the... Uh, not the paranormal kind, just the uh, alcohol kind. I'm not a fan of those lava tubes, bro. Because, like, I went to Craters of the Moon once, and I was walking through some of those crater uh, lava flow tubes. And then, like, a couple years later, news reports, these things are caving in on people. I was like, <laughs> oh, my God, I'll never do that again. Yeah, so one thing that struck me was when we were down under there, one of the guides was, like pointing to these giant boulders in the middle of the tube. And they were like, yeah, you know, and this is where these boulders came down. If you look at the ceiling, you could see the layers of lava that these oh, detached man. from. And I was like, uh, let me long? out. Let me out. <laughs> how long ago was that? Cause that fucker looks like it's about three tons, but yeah. I was okay. like, oh, that was last week. We closed it off for a day or two, but <laughs> yeah, this morning it was yeah. up there when I walked down there. Um, some person was like, so is that, I see why we wear the helmets now. And the lady was like, if a rock comes down on you from the ceiling, that helmet isn't going to do anything. No. And I was like, whoa, oh, telling oh. it like it is. But at least she's being honest, right? Yeah. I wonder what's safer, walking in some of those tubes or taking a, an air an airplane. <laughs> I think that depends on the airline. True. 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 Do not go with United Airlines. Don't sue us, United Airlines, for saying that. Whoa, just kidding. Hey, man. Whoa. Oh, man. Well, Scott, as you know, we had super fan shy fill in those abnormally large boots of yours last week while you're on the, that freak show of a honeymoon. So, uh, ooh, nice. Yep, yep. Shy, thanks for helping us out. That was awesome. I hope you fit into those abnormally large and misshapen boots. Hope it wasn't 
too bad for you. <laughs> um, yeah, good shit. That was like voids in those boots, so I don't think your feet filled much of anything. It's just so big. <laughs> but you listened to the show when you got back, right? I did. I did. And what'd you think? Dude, it was fantastic. Dude, I mean, if anyone was to take over, freaking shy, knocked it out of the park. I mean, just that mix of smart, sultry. I'm not going to go on here, but <laughs> I mean, it was, it was fantastic. Yeah, it was great. It was great. And, and I felt like, man, this is, this is how it was meant to be in my stead. Fantastic. And Shai is here with us now, um, as we said she would be last week. So Shai, if you would like, say what up to the world. What's up, guys? How's it going? And we're going to have a little bit of a connection issue, ladies and gentlemen. Shai is far away from us, and so uh, she's having a little bit of connection problems. But we're going we're gonna to try to make this work. So this is part two of our World Trade Center Building Number 7 series. And last week we went over a lot about the World Trade Center and mostly stuck to Towers 1, 2, and obviously 7. We went over a lot of information from independent studies that basically refuted everything in the government's official narrative of the September 11th, 2001 attack on the World Trade Center complex. Independent studies that old Bushy and his criminal administration fought against. And we went over tons of eyewitness accounts of what actually happened that day and video evidence that does nothing but suggest that explosives were used in the attack rather than being absent. We also touched on the art of distraction because that is central to this whole thing. It's actually essential to everything that the powers that be rely on to help maintain their power and control over us. And we just play along with it as we work our asses off so we can just give them right back all that imaginary money we quote unquote make through our hard labors. And if you haven't listened to last week's episode yet, I highly suggest that you do that before you listen to this one just to keep the story linear. Now, without a further moment of hesitation, Scott, let's unleash the fury before we move on with today's episode. Of course, of course. And now, blurbs and splurbs. We now bring you to the splurbing pleasure, the segment that keeps you all blurbing along safely. That's right. I now present to you Trey Portrays. That vocalist, just uh, better than last week. Yeah, for sure. This first story for Trey Portray, ladies and gentlemen, comes to us from https colon backslash backslash torontosun.com. Sorry, that's we're legally obligated to read out the entire web address. It's true. Apparently a suspect, a suspect, <laughs> a suspect from Birmingham, Alabama, admitted to murdering Natalie Holloway in Aruba. Also, also pled guilty to extorting her mom. What an asshole. What do you think about that, Coop? Total prick, man. So, yeah, I mean, this is, like, long time coming because this guy's been wanted for this murder for forever. Oh, yeah. Since, I mean, like, this, 2005. The, yeah, the kill. Exactly. I was just going to say, so this this hit the airwaves in 2005. Natalie Holloway was beaten to death on a beach in Aruba, and then her body was pushed out to sea. Apparently, it was because she refused this man's advances. Come on, man. Come on. Yep. Well, Vandersloot, the suspect, now 36, pled guilty to extortion and fraud charges in exchange for a 20-year sentence. That seems pretty light. I'm not going to lie. But I was a little bit surprised when I read that in the article. Because yeah. not only is it a 20-year sentence, but it's running concurrently, not consecutively, with a 28-year sentence that he's serving in Peru for a separate murder. Yeah, This woman named ridiculous. Stephanie Flores... In 2010. What the Pretty fuck? ridiculous. Pretty fucking ridiculous. Yeah. So, yeah, I just, I, I think, uh, honestly, 
even though he's on the hook for it now, seems a little bit lenient from the old court. But it's not out of uh, the United States, right? You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. But, man, wasn't the uh, the victim was American, right? Yeah, Natalie Holloway was American. Yes, but maybe there's some kind of jurisdictional issue. I'm just, like, trying to put the pieces together in Aruba. Yeah, man, that's crazy, though, especially because it's running consec- or, I mean, concurrently with another murder that he was convicted of. Exactly. So the story it just makes no sense. Uh, the story goes, uh, they were lying on a beach, kissing. She was resisting, and he kept going for it, so she kneed him between the legs. He stood up and kicked her hard in the face, and she was basically dead at that point. But then he picked up a cinder block, and he smashed it on her head. And then he was, quote-unquote, frightened, which, come on. And then he dragged her body into the sea and pushed it out to sea. Yeah, I mean, because what else would you do when you just, you know, murdered someone and you're extremely scared and you're not sure what to do? What would you do other than, you know, drag the body out to sea and cover up your tracks? Well, I'll tell you what he did. Five years later, he reached out to her mom and said, hey, if you give me $250,000, I'll tell you where your daughter's remains are. Like, that is fucked up. Piece of shit. So crazy. But uh, anyways, he's going to be returned to Peruvian custody until after his case is concluded. So we'll keep an eye on what's going on there. Pretty crazy. Speaking of the death of certain things, I guess, um, Oregon has removed writing, reading, and math mastery from high school graduation requirements. I'm going to let that uh, sink in. Now, when I, when I first read this, I thought they're talking about completely removing writing, reading, and math from the classroom curriculum. But I was wrong, right? <laughs> yeah, that's not entirely true. So I, I'm going to go out here and I'm just going to say, hey, this article is largely BuzzFeed material um, because really what the judgment was passed on was standardized testing in schools. And traditionally, the schools in this state of Oregon have used one specific standardized test for quite a long time. And the teachers have been forced to teach to that test, which is kind of bullshit because <clears throat> one test can't prove mastery over these skills, right? Right. So when they say, yeah, it's removing writing, reading, and math mastery from high school graduation requirements, what they're really saying is they've voted down this particular method of measuring such things. And that's, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I just want to play devil's advocate and say there are other other ways to skin a cat, right? Like just because someone doesn't do well on the standardized test doesn't mean that they don't know how to write, read, or speak. Oh, exactly. So. And so um, in lieu of these standardized tests, what, do they, what have they proposed? Well, there's a lot of people filing um, public comments on the subject. And unfortunately... The article doesn't really go on to say like they have some kind of backup, which is kind of the shysty part. Um, so I'm not exactly sure how they're going to be measuring this moving forward because it, it has been a tool at least to see like at large the pie slice of the graph, what what uh, students are doing where. Right. So, yeah, you know, but the standardized test, they were they like the defining line between graduation or not? Um, it. It was part of a graduation requirement in the past. So if you didn't... So now they're going to remove this. Yeah, so if you elected not to take it in the past, you would have a tough time graduating. 
Um, but the problem with but that... they're just going to remove it completely. Yeah, now they're going to remove it. But the problem before was it would the, the prep for it would take up a lot of time, uh, which in some cases made it so some students weren't able to take electives or other things that were better suited to their chosen projected path. So will this so. lower the standard knowledge of students to where a person who wouldn't have passed high school because they just didn't have, they didn't meet the knowledge base curriculum or something, you know, they weren't smart enough, you know, so they didn't graduate. Unfortunately, as it is with a lot of these types of decisions, the long-term effects, the ripples, if you will, of this stone in this particular pond won't be able to be calculated or tabulated for quite a long time. Okay. So we'll see. Fair enough. That's a, that's a, that's a fancy way of saying, <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't. I don't know, man. <laughs> right, I don't have right. the answers. All right. I wasn't sitting there on the school board. All right. Okay. But we'll we'll be uh we'll all be feeling the effects. We definitely will be. And this is only going to be in place till what twenty twenty nine, I believe. Like it's they're suspending it apparently. Yeah. Well, most things that get suspended in that sense end up just dying anyways. So true that suspended, sure, but pretty mm. much. It's the death. It's gone. It's the death notice. Yeah. Speaking of death notices, <laughs> our last story, ladies and gentlemen, segue, comes to us from TorontoSun.com yet again. I love this. Uh, the The address is actually backslash news backslash weird backslash man. <laughs> love that. Uh, apparently, a 55 year old man was accused of having sex with a stuffed animal. Hey, oh. Yeah. Is there anything? illegal about that well not that i've seen but the the crazy part is he was accused but the the officer rolled up and the dude was clearly doing that so okay one yeah question. he was <laughs> one question here. yeah go ahead go ahead what was the stuffed animal i think everybody wants to know this you know that's really it's it's the tragedy of this whole article everybody wants to know but it doesn't say ah, it just man. says a stuffed animal but isn't that everyone's first question because, like, what if it's some, like, super foxy fox or something? I mean, you yeah. know, I'm not saying, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm not saying that's what I'm into. I'm just saying, like, isn't that a little bit more understandable than some, like, soulless-looking bear or something? Like, I don't know. Exactly. Was it a life-size stuffed animal? Was it, like, a tiny pocket-sized stuffed animal? You know, was it a fish? Was it a chicken? I thought that's what furries were for. Oh, yeah. We love furries here. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that's what those were for, so you weren't fucking stuffed animals <laughs> exactly i'm like why couldn't this person just find a life-sized furry thing to you know like what is it specifically the attraction to the small version like what's Could what's be. up like i feel like there's this article raises more questions than it does gives us answers i think it's more you know? of uh he this guy gets off on the inanimate part of the thing, <laughs> you know what i mean because like, people have sex like with their own car in the fucking tailpipe. There's the lady who was married to a carnival ride. Wait, what? How is that even possible? I don't know, but she is, and this is the second inanimate object she's been married to. Whoa, so she got a divorce to the last one? <laughs> I would assume so, because I don't think you can be married <laughs> no. twice, legally, to anything or buddy. Yeah, I feel like at this point, the judge, whoever's presiding over these marriages, is just like, yeah, you know what? Go ahead, lady. Like... You have the balls to keep coming back in here and asking. So, yeah, you know what? I decree you married to that carnival ride. Go be happy. That's unreal. You know? 
Who officiates that? Is it probably it's probably not like an actual person officiating it, like a priest? It's probably just one of the carnies <laughs> at, the, at the carnival. They're just like, yeah, you could totally marry that bumper car. You know, do you bumper car take this woman as your wife? Anybody can be offici- officiated to you know officiate a wedding or be a preacher or whatever the hell it is. I don't I don't know. Well, you can literally just go online and like online. purchase a certificate yeah. to be a yeah uh, absolutely. Yeah one of those people that can officiate one exactly yeah. i think it's like through the catholic church or something you can literally like buy one for like 40 bucks exactly but it just begs the question like what is it that prompts these people to do that in this case of the 55 year old man in arkansas the search of the car turned up some kind of interesting things right so the officer searched the car after he saw this rocking vehicle and this man was accused of having sex with a stuffed animal and what he found were two marijuana pipes apparently one syringe and about three grams of meth, which I guess with that combination, you could probably, yeah, you could probably, you'd probably want to get it on with just about anything after all that. So, I mean, I don't know. I've got two marijuana pipes, one syringe, <laughs> and three grams of meth, <laughs> and this this stuffed animal I'm having sex with. Yeah, where's the nearest Build-A-Bear? <laughs> you know. Um, I just want to, I just want to say it was not the marijuana that led to this man's decisions. <laughs> yeah my... most likely the meth and the syringe actually i disagree so. i think it's the uh ever increasing standard of attractiveness of stuffed animals these days but hey yeah that is true the way they are dressed <laughs> yeah like they leave the house in that <laughs> jokes jokes anyways ladies and gentlemen that's it for now for our tray portray our tray portrays <laughs> You guys are right. That band is really, really good. They really do. And they do get better every week, don't they? Yeah, you know, it's funny because we pay them less and less. But I think I gave them a pierogi last week. I really keep a track of that. So, yeah, I was wondering where my pierogi went. Maybe next time you should tip them two pierogies because it's one thing to hear them playing from the speakers or whatever, but to That's hear true. them live. Yeah, it's pretty pretty incredible stuff. I fully agree. Fully agree. All right. Well, I mean, that's a lot of money to throw down on two fucking pierogies. <laughs> yeah, with inflation? Inflation on top of everything. Yeah. Now, I believe last week we had just started to touch on the use of thermite. So let's just go back to those tiny pieces of red-gray chips that were discovered in every sample of dust that the University of Alaska Fairbanks tested. Again, the samples of the University of Alaska Fairbanks used were collected at Ground Zero on the day of the attack, the following day, a few days after that, and then just about a week later. So let's repeat what they said about those tiny chips. Quote, When ignited in a DSC device, the chips exhibit large but narrow exotherms occurring at approximately 430 degrees Celsius or 800 degrees Fahrenheit, far below the normal ignition temperature for conventional thermite. Numerous iron-rich spheres are clearly observed in the residue following the ignition of these peculiar red-gray chips. The red portion of these chips is found to be an unreacted thermitic material and highly energetic. End quote. And what did FEMA say? Well, they said that they found clear evidence of very high heat attacking areas of the steel in the buildings, which caused oxidation and sulfication with subsequent intragranular melting. They also said there was a sulfur-rich liquid that penetrated preferentially downgrain boundaries of the steel. 
Without saying it, this indicates an intentional act. But they also said that the, quote, severe corrosion and subsequent erosion are a very unusual event, end quote. Therefore, both the University of Alaska Fairbanks and FEMA validated each other's findings, which in turn invalidated the official story. I love it when two separate entities, you know, in two very different places come out with these things that basically you can't ignore the results that they come out with, right? No. You have to factor them into the equation. And when you do, it just points to one thing, and that's liars. Absolutely, you know, man. Like just intentional pulling of the wool over the eyes. So I'm glad it's not enough. I'm glad that's not enough for a lot of people. They don't rest. They hear that. They're like, yeah, mm, no, I don't think so. I'm going to look into this. Yeah. And gosh, the truth is always just so much more intense than the actual fiction. It is, you know. And I just hope that more people will continue keeping this fight alive with the 9-11 official report being bogus because, I mean, this is the largest criminal act in probably the world. And it's by our own governments, multiple governments, not just the United States governments. But the interesting part is that FEMA, FEMA made that initial report. The first actual, the first report to come out was by FEMA. And they're the ones that found that, which validated the University of Alaska Fairbanks findings. So it's really interesting. Crazy. And later um, in the official report, they would leave out all of those, the FEMA reports. They wouldn't, they wouldn't put that in. Why wouldn't they? No surprise there. Yeah. So if thermite was used in Building 7 or Towers 1 and 2, which all of the evidence obviously verifies, then we have to ask, how did it get there? And who put it there? Well, there's some pretty interesting information about that. If you remember uh, when Larry Silverstein had those renovations done in Towers 1 and 2, well, those repairs were said to be for fireproofing, elevator work, recabling, and general construction. These repairs and what have you were being done for a certain amount of time preceding the attacks. Some say weeks, others say months. But the fact is that these upgrades, the fireproofing and the elevator shaft work, it was all being done. The time frame of these repairs, etc., is said to have started as early as 1993, right after the first bombing happened, when an Al-Qaeda-linked operative with the assistance of the FBI and most likely the CIA had planted a truck bomb in the parking garage under Tower 1. We all remember that. We won't get into it here because that's for another episode. But it is highly suspected that as early as 1993, plans were being put into place by the U.S. government or some facet of it to take down the World Trade Center complex. Why? Well, you and I will never know for sure, but it's highly suspected that it had a lot to do with the stuff called money. You know, terrorism and war is always highly profitable. And we'll see here a pretty hefty coincidence between people in power and the defense contractors they hired in that whole revolving door between the two. And what happened immediately after the 9-11 attack? Well, I can tell you, like, everybody came together and was like, do whatever it takes. I mean, they had America's sympathy, you know. They could have come out with any, just, you know, any plan, and everybody in the country would have been like, let's do it. I mean, you have a carte, you have a carte blanche to do whatever you want to do at that point, because no one's going to try to stop you. Uh, they already had someone to blame, too, because they were already pinning it on Osama bin Laden. Yeah. Like, right away. Instantly, before the American public and calling it knew. a terrorist attack. Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah, exactly. 100%. And also, if you recall, Donald Rumsfeld came out in a press conference the day before 9-11, that is one day before the attack on September 10th, 2001, 
to tell not only the American people, but the entire world that something like $2.3 trillion was missing from the Pentagon accounting. And then the next day, boom, all that missing money was no longer a thought in the general public's mind, completely forgot about. But some people did pay attention and they connected the dots. By some miraculous stroke of luck, the Bush administration suddenly had more than enough money to fund the wars in the Middle East that they had been planning to carry out. And just like that, the funding was there. Ugh. It's so spooky because so many pieces have to move on such a huge level, and it just happened in an instant. Mm-hmm. You know, there it just it didn't take what should have taken years. It, it just happened overnight. Well, yeah, I mean, the thing is, they had been planning this for years. You know, this has been true. They designed this to, you know, it's just so intensely like layered that it it scares most people away. Like they don't even want to look into it because it's like it's too much. It's too overwhelming, too much information out there. So they just stick with like the easiest fucking scenario. Like this is what happened. This didn't happen. Let's just go with the official story because, well, it's the government telling us and the government would never lie to us. Yeah, fair, fair. But by the way, you know, tiny Dick Cheney's company, Halliburton, which is the world's (laughs) largest oil service company, which also serves as a defense contractor for the United States government, made millions from the Middle East invasion spearheaded by Cheney, Rumsfeld, Bush, and all of their handlers. And in the end, Cheney himself was handed $34 million for his part in the entire mass murder. I mean, the truth is, none of it's a surprise, right? I mean, these people already have achieved high status in their areas. They've already achieved the connections that most people will never get because they know somebody or they know somebody that knows somebody. So then to come around and find out that the people who are closest to the top are going to benefit in such a huge way, in such a huge monetary way, um, yeah, it's just like not a shock at all. All right, so now we're about to get into a bunch of names of big players and names of various companies involved in this whole thing, so just get prepared. The Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, or the PANYNJ, was responsible for initiating all modifications, repairs, etc., in all public access areas of all the buildings at World Trade Center. And the tenants of those buildings were then responsible for completing those modifications and repairs as a general rule. This means that the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey's could simply have issued a directive that this and that needed to be upgraded or repaired or whatever, and then the tenants would have been responsible to make it happen. In addition, it said that the Port Authority pretty much ordered Silverstein to clean up all of the asbestos in the towers, which would have cost him something like $100 million each year for a number of years. And I should point out here that Larry Silverstein only put down around $200 million of his own money and his company's money, actually, to purchase the entire complex. And he took out a $3.5 billion insurance policy on it. And so far, he's collected uh, something like $4.6 billion from this travesty. Oh, that's so crazy that you think about this guy who, I mean, just personally, right? Not an entity, but just like one man takes this insurance policy out and collects more I mean, far more, especially to the tune of over four and a half billion dollars. Whoa. When he only put down 200 million. Come on. Yeah, man. And if you remember, that's insane. How is how did they get away with it? I have no idea. And no one bats an eyelash or thinks twice about handing him the money. They just go ahead and hand it to him. Well, they don't think about it. There was a pretty there was a pretty big fight by the insurance companies to not pay it out. There was, but he, having the, as much money as he is worth, he had the best attorneys 
in New York, mind you, to basically fight to get the money. So it wasn't just like, oh, this happened as an insurance company. Okay, here's the money. It wasn't like that at all. Like they fought tooth and nail against it, but he won ultimately. I mean, he did legally take out an insurance policy, you know? Yeah, it it's just crazy because of all the talk that surrounded, you know, the events of that time, this conversation about this $4.6 billion, in my memory, never made it to public, public forethought. Nobody had any idea. Never. You're saying this guy had to fight. Well, I mean, where was the fight? All behind. It wasn't happening on the news. <laughs> you know? No, it wasn't. It wasn't. Not at it all. It was all behind closed doors. No one knew about it. But in the court system, like it took years for him to actually win that case. Um, but yeah, like you said, it's never talked about. The media, like we know, is bought by these billionaires. So people would be like, who is this guy? I'm going to find him. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And we're going to get more into Larry Silverstein here in a minute, too. But if you remember, Flight 11 hit Tower 1 between floors 94 and 99. Miraculously, those were the floors that had only just been fireproofed just weeks before the attack, along with a number of other repairs and construction. So what tenants occupied those floors? Marsh and McLennan, who was arguably the largest insurance brokerage company. That's who. And there was one other company, which was the Sumitomo Bank, which shared part of the 96th floor with Marsh. Between 1993 and 2001, Marsh had been making several modifications to those floors, including the fireproofing in late 2001. And according to NIST, Marsh had more or less demolished floors 95 through 98 of the same tower in order to rebuild the fire alarm and sprinkler systems. And in 2000, more work was done on floor 95. One of the people involved with Marsh was Stefan Friedman, a senior principal at Marsh Capital and former partner with Goldman Sachs, and who later became George W. Bush's top economic advisor. He was also a ranking member of the Brookings Institute, the Bilderberg Group, the Foreign Intelligence Advisory Board, and he was on the board at a company called NQTEL, which was an investment firm that was founded by the CIA in 1998. This is all verified information. NQTEL was doing a lot of shit with state-of-the-art technologies relating to defense and intelligence work, which included nano and chemical technologies. Friedman was also in a secret society called Quill and Dagger at Cornell University with another man named Paul Wolfowitz, who would be the future neocon deputy secretary of defense for the Bush administration and was the author of the 1992 Wolfowitz Doctrine, which was all about preemptive warfare. He was also talking about a surprise like Pearl Harbor just months before September 11, 2001. And a neocon, for those who aren't aware, is a person that believes in a militaristic philosophy of, quote, peace through strength, end quote. They are dangerous people and unfortunately dominate our United States political structure. That that totally makes sense, too, because those are the people who are going to ascend. Because at the end of the day, I feel like the government, the people who are picking the top, you know, decision makers... They want people that are going to say, you know what, America's the biggest, baddest, bitchinest country, and we're going to make sure we're the bitchinest. Yeah. I mean, yeah, of course they dominate our our peace through strength type government. I mean, yeah, yeah those absolutely. are the people that move up the ranks. Those yep. are the ones, man. They're like, hell yeah, brother. <laughs> yep. Get over here, let me suck that dick. That's what they say. <laughs> 
Now, another, another guy that was working side by side with all these other criminals was a guy named Paul Bremer. Bremer would become CEO of Marsh just one month after 9-11. Prior to that, he was a CEO of Marsh Political Risk Practice and had an office in the South Tower. Also prior to that, years prior, he was working on a national report on terrorism and was a managing director for Kissinger Associates. Yes, that Kissinger, Henry Kissinger, probably the biggest war criminal who is still alive today. And he's 100 years old today, man, actually. Not like today, but he is 100 years old in our in our times in 2023. Anyway. Yeah, he's being hooked up to a bunch of tubes and circuit boards dude, as we speak. Yeah. And if anyone doesn't know who Henry Kissinger, just fucking go look that guy up. He's been in like 18 fucking presidential cabinets, dude. He's been in so many different <laughs> administrations. It's insane. Yeah, they just can't so, get rid of anyway, him. He's just, he just has an no. honorary seat at this point. He does. No matter what he does, he's like at the top, like pulling strings. Yeah. It's fucking crazy. He's going to be that Futurama head in the, mm. in the glass jar. I think it was like Reagan's head. He's going to be the first. That's Nixon. It's Nixon's head. Is it Nixon? Yeah, it's Nixon. Yeah, Nixon, yeah you're yeah. right. It's right. It's, it's Nixon's Nixon. head. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, because he does the Iroo. <laughs> yes. Yes. Nice. Well, Henry Kissinger is going to be our true first. If there isn't somebody there already. Dude, probably um, a few of them back in the closet. <laughs> His head's connected to tubes. I was thinking that, or they were just going to like, there's the guy that's like all... I don't know. They like dehydrated him and put him in like a glass case and his head, his actual head is sitting in front of him. Like they had to make a fake head because his head just wasn't lasting as long as his body was. But I don't remember who it was now, but his, his actual head's just sitting on the floor in front of him, but he's in a glass case. So you can see him. <laughs> Weird. I want to see this. Gnarly. Yeah. doesn't sound like it worked out very well for him. No. Anyway. <laughs> Bremer was a member on the board of Axo Noble, which is the parent company of International Paint, a company that produced fireproofing applications for skyscrapers, which they called Interchar. Just keep all of this in mind. So he was also involved with Dresser Industries, which was an oil and intelligence service that the Bushes were heavily linked to. They were or are also linked to the Japanese mining and machinery company Kabatsu. And these two companies would later join forces, and in July of 1996, they patented a thermite demolition device that could, quote, unquote, demolish a concrete structure at a high efficiency while preventing a secondary problem due to noise, flying dust and chips, and the like, end quote. And for anyone somewhat familiar with all these connections, the 9-11 cover-up, then you'll know that Dresser Industries would later merge with Dick Cheney and Halliburton in 1998. On 9-11... Bremer was interviewed by NBC, and he flat out stated that Osama bin Laden was responsible for the attack, and that Iraq and maybe Iran were involved too. Interestingly, there was a lot of effort to scrub that interview from the internet, and government-owned Google removed it from its servers at least three times. Why is that important? For a few reasons. But for one, it's because no average American at the time even knew who Osama bin Laden was. And it's pretty interesting that within only an hour or so of the attack, Every mainstream news agency somehow already knew that Osama was the guy behind it. So it's pretty fishy. Not to mention the drills going on at the exact same time with the same exact situation going on. Planes being hijacked and flown into buildings. Right. Including the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. True. And the flyers that were circulated within the Pentagon and those conducting the drills had a picture of Osama bin Laden in the crosshairs. Exactly. And up to that point in time, the average American had no idea who Osama bin Laden was, like I said. But the U.S. government already 
they they already knew who their fall guy was, who was, by the way, a CIA agent on their payroll, which is all verified information. That's right. Osama bin Laden was a CIA agent on the payroll. Then, in 2003, Bremer was sent off to Iraq to act as the Iraq occupational governor, because that is how these revolving doors work. Anyway, Flight 175 hit Tower 2 between floors 77 and 85 in the southeast corner of the building. Right at the impact zone, roughly the 78th to the 83rd floor, were a few companies called Baseline Financial Services, Fuji Bank, and Aon Corporation. Floors 77 and 78 were said to have been upgraded for fireproofing in 1998 and 1999. Baseline was headed by a man named Joseph Kasputi, who was well-connected to the highest level of government, as well as the defense and intelligence industries. Joseph also helped create the Department of Energy, or DOE, in which he was intimately involved with. It's interesting to note that DOE was developing thermite ignition devices as early as 1983, and in 1990, the Department of Energy developed what we know as nanothermite. So there's that piece of information which should be taken into you know, consideration. Also, just to point out here, there are so many defense and weapons companies involved in this. LMI, or Logistics Management Institute, whose members include powerful people from InQtel. There was also General Dynamics, Halliburton, and the Science Applications International Corporation, or SAIC, among many others. But all these companies and more have intimate ties with everybody that is suspected to be involved in this massive cover-up. You can't sit there and tell me that every connection between these people, these companies, the ideology they all share, just so happened to be a series of coincidences. Oh, yeah. you No, there's, there's no way. I mean, it's always going to be the in-crowd helping the in-crowd. Always, and it always has been. It goes all the way back. I mean, this is even just a small example, but and this is one of my favorite examples. But the people building the railroad back during the expansion of the West in old America all knew each other. The planners, the urban planners, would purposely lay out these routes that the it wouldn't really make sense if you saw it on a map. These train tracks would be going all kinds of directions. And it's just so that the train companies, the guys that owned you know, the, the track building, they could just clean up making money because they had such a long route to plan. They would purposely make it go out of the way. It wasn't like efficient paths or anything like that. That's just one small example. You know, people helping people, people helping people. So the guys making those decisions, helping their buddies out like, yeah, yeah. Oh, totally make this crazy ass train track design. Yep. That looks like the right one. Yeah. But that's just a small example of, going back a long ways for sure no different and saic is a defense contractor with a shit ton of expertise in thermite related technologies they also played a very key role in both of NIST's investigations so that's a huge red flag and what about lmi well their self-proclaimed role is quote unquote advancing the science of government what does that sound like to you advancing the science of government why not just advancing science yeah, definitely has some kind of uh, sci-fi, like, ominous tone to it. Pretty soon in school, now that we don't have the standardized test, <laughs> um, they're going to be teaching uh, science and government science. And science of government. Oh, man. Yeah. Back to back. You actually have to take all three to graduate and demonstrate mastery over uh, 
over-sciencing. Yeah, but I think you have to like have a... <laughs> they got to put the government into everything, you know? They got to make sure they put their little fingers in the bowl. Yeah, you would have pre-government, and then you would have advanced government, and then you'd have governmental science, and then you'd have science of government. And that would actually be your whole diploma. Right. You wouldn't actually take any other classes. No. That would be it. That's your entire curriculum. That's your entire curriculum for all of high school. You might be able to take jazz government at some point and play an instrument. <laughs> yeah. But it had to just be like the swing music, the old style, like 19, 1940s. We're going, we're in World War II. Sign up now. Welcome the president. The president is standing ready to address the nation at this year's governor's ball. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's your jazz government. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is. It's all going to be propaganda. I mean, it already is propaganda. History is completely false. We're taught all the wrong shit. <laughs> it's only going to get worse. But then there was this other company called Primark, which was or is the parent company that owned or owns at least 50 other companies. It was basically this umbrella company where Joseph Casputi was CEO, just as he was at Baseline. In June of 2000, Primark and all of its tentacles would be purchased by Thomas Financial. When that happened, Casputi became the CEO of Thomas Financial, but there was more to be done. He then founded an intelligence service called IHS Global Insight in March of 2001. Seeing that Primark was the parent company of at least 50 other companies, he might wonder if they had a company that dealt with aviation or planes. Maybe. I mean, why not? Well... It just so turns out that they owned a company called Triad International Maintenance Company, or TIMCO, which did many things, including specifically modifying Boeing 757s and 767s. And if you recall, the planes that hit Towers 1 and 2 were both 767s. The plane that hit the Pentagon was a 757, as was the plane that may or may not have crashed in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Bum, bum, bum. Pretty yeah, interesting. Another convenient coincidence. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And another company that Primark owned was one called the Analytic Sciences Corp, or TASC, which was another security and intelligence company that had contracts with the Department of Energy, who also developed nanothermite. And now you have to ask, why do these guys need so many different companies whose mission statements are all the same? Why do they need all these companies who all specialize in the same things? And why are all these guys on each other's boards? Why the fuck? Answer me that question, Scott. If only I knew. I'd probably be on one, to be honest. <laughs> Screw this. I'm gonna be on one of these <laughs> I'm gonna be on one of these boards, man, with this like very specific mission. Probably making nanothermite. I mean if you want like, death on your I hands, bro. If you want murder, if you want that blood all over those hands. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> Don't put that on me, man. I take it back. Don't put that on me. I didn't uh I didn't take the standardized test, right. so you know, I I don't know what I'm talking don't about. Don't join the dark side, bro. Do not. <laughs> I'll think about it. I heard they have cookies. cookies? Never mind. I'm I'm joining. I'm in. Yep. Sign. Yep. Sign me up. <laughs> everything I just said. I'm, I'm yeah, going. Right. That's all I needed to know. Why didn't you lead with that? I am now in the nano thermite business. Anyway, Fuji Bank was located on floors 79 to 82, just above baseline. Fuji had modified the core of floor 78 in 1998, as well as the east wall of floor 80 the following year. Also, certain unknown areas of floor 80 in 2001, and then the southeast corner of floor 82 in 1997. 
What is pretty interesting is that Flight 175 flew directly into the southeast corner, causing the most damage to floors 78 through 83. Continuing. During that time period, Fuji's biggest investors happened to be Union Carbide, Mobile Oil, and Raytheon, all having close ties with basically the entire Bush administration. And what is Raytheon, you ask? Aren't they another government defense contractor or something? Precisely, yeah. They're pretty much the largest U.S. defense contractor who specialize in the manufacturing of weapons and military and commercial electronics. They are also the world's largest producer of guided missiles. Are any eyebrows raised right now? So just keep that in mind. Largest producer of guided missiles. Raytheon is composed of five major business divisions. One is integrated defense systems. Two, intelligence, information, and services. Three, missile systems. Four, space and airborne systems. Five, Force Point, which is a multinational software corporation. They also work very closely with Homeland Security and develop state-of-the-art precision attack air-to-surface missile systems. And they do a shit ton in surveillance and reconnaissance. And I'll point out that Donald Rumsfeld had millions of dollars in stock with Raytheon. Cheney has always been rubbing dicks with Raytheon. Oh, and all the Bushes too, seeing that it was Vannevar Bush who started the company. Are we connecting dots here? Is everyone following along? Definitely following along. Also, just not surprised at all, though. Like, that's the thing. Like, pardon my lack of an emotional response, but it's just it's just kind of like, yeah, that would happen. You know, just with the way everything's been run and all the things that have been coming out over the last couple decades, it's just so not a shock to me. Yeah, and it isn't a shock to most people who, like, are somewhat privy to this sort of thing. Yeah, people are like, yep, sounds about right. Yeah, and it's like, yeah, we know this already. Let's talk about something else. Like, yeah, we, yeah, I know we all know this, but it's like we need to keep this at the forefront of our fucking brains. Like, this needs to be out in the public sphere of knowledge. Like, people need to know this stuff. True, true. Because if we don't learn from history, obviously history repeats itself. And this sort of thing is going to happen again on a much larger scale in the future. Obviously, it's going to happen because it can happen and the people in power can make it happen. Hey, man, I'm now three clicks away from joining this thermite making operation here online i just got certified i'm gonna start a, a training course here in an in an hour oh man so if we could that was quick you know, i mean if, if, if we uh, could do long as there are well, cookies yeah they said free cookies but are they good I'm cookies or are they like the the, sh- the shitty dollar store cookies i don't even care honestly cookies are cookies they they could have thermite on them and i wouldn't care i'd be like they're free first of all second of all cookies i'm in sign me up moving on the cia has this thing where they set up these networks of companies and corporations of varying sizes called shell companies that look legit to the outside eyes even to an auditor new to the job would be like okay that's just a regular business They then use these companies to launder money, and when they've used it to the extent they need, they then dissolve these companies by either making them go bankrupt or make it look like they were just bought up by one of their other many companies. By doing so, the records of these shell companies are completely destroyed. No one will ever see them. So that's pretty, uh, you know. Smart system. Pretty awesome. Yeah. If you are the CIA. Yeah. And there were a handful of these shell companies who had offices in Towers 1 and 2 who just dissolved afterward. Again, that's for another episode. But all right, let's get to that other company I mentioned, Aeon Corporation. Aeon was pretty much the competitor of Marsh, or at least as seen in the public's eye. But they had floor 83. Quick note, currently a man named Richard Myers, who happens to be a general, 
who had just become the 15th chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff only one month prior to 9-11, and who completely failed the American people in his role, is now a director of Aon. Again, the revolving door just keeps turning. But at the time, the managing director of Aon was Jim Pierce. Guess who Jim Pierce is? Jim Pierce is a cousin of George W. Bush. Of course. His father was a partner with Papa Bush and had pled guilty in 1985 to 2,000 counts of mail fraud as the acting president of an investment firm that Papa Bush was involved with, E.F. Hutton. So Aon had modified some unknown areas of floor 83 in 1997. There was another company, the Chuo Trust, that shared the same floor, and according to NIST, Chuo modified the southeast corner as well in 1999. Two other companies of note were connected to the Washington Group International, which was primarily a construction and mining firm connected to key players in government and who had partnered with Raytheon. The two companies are the Lawrence Livermore Labs and Savannah River, who had made an agreement to share some technology. This technology was the development of SolGel for fuels and other applications. SolGel technology is heavily utilized in making nanothermites. The Washington Group had an office on floor 91, just above the impact zone of the South Tower. When you start to list it all back to back, and I know that's the whole point, right, of this exercise, this thought exercise, if you will, there's just no way that it's coincidental. No, no. it. You like, it, it goes full circle. It just, like, keeps going back in a circle, like, back to the same company, the same people, like, over and over again. There, like you said, there's too many coincidences for it to be a coincidence. And, yeah, far like, too many. And the sole purpose of a lot of these companies, the way that they're pointing, when you look at the mission statement of what they're setting out to do, I mean, there's just no way that you could have that high of a volume in one place without it being... Yeah. How did nobody notice this before? That's the crazy shit. You know, well, what I think is because nothing like 9-11 ever happened before. True. So nobody no one, was asking the no question, one, right? No one was you asking know? questions. Yeah. Exactly. To everyone's minds are just like all these well, companies the are art just of, the art of distraction. Like you said in the beginning, like it's the art of distraction. The art right. of yeah. distraction. We like I remember being a kid and watching it and thinking like Osama bin Laden, like we got to get this guy. He's the one who did it. Like and that that's all America did. That's right. Remember, American flags were being sold like crazy. Like it was like American pride. Like, oh yeah, they they literally blinded us. Yeah, like no one even thought to look into it because what's crazy is like the media in the United States was all like, yeah, Osama bin Laden, nine eleven, you know, this and that, and then like other media companies in other countries were like, that's inside job. Like, <laughs> the American people are being lied to by their own government. But like that news never made it to us until after all this shit was like settled down. And then now it's like completely scrubbed. Like you can't find shit. It's crazy. Yeah. Even Osama bin Laden was like, <laughs> yeah, I totally did it. Probably thought it was some kind of joke until America started coming after him and never stopped. <laughs> you know? Well, yeah. But I mean, Osama bin Laden died officially at least three times. So true. True. And again, he was a CIA agent. <laughs> I mean, there are pictures of this whole yeah. bin Laden family with the Bush family. It's insane. I mean, because they started business together in construction, like back uh, after the Cold War or, something, or uh, Gulf War. Checks out. But I want to add here that I had mentioned that the Port Authority and the owner, Larry Silverstein, would order the tenants on each floor of the building to take care of whatever upgrades or renovations or general, general construction needed to be done. And then those tenants, whether they were an insurance corporation, a bank, weapons company, reinsurer, whatever, it was those tenants who were responsible to complete those tasks. And so they would just find subcontractors to do the work for them, as is usually done. 
And as again deduced by now, these subcontractors would be those shell companies which would be dissolved once they carried out their purpose. Okay, so there's just a little bit of background on who the tenants were at the impact zones. What is important to remember is that all of them, all of them had access to explosive materials and or expertise to use them. Not only that, but some of them were the only ones to have any expertise on certain types of nanothermite and how it could be mechanized to its fullest extent. And not only that, but many of them were contracted to be part of the cleanup process after the entire World Trade Center was demolished, thereby having knowledge of what to look for and how to cover their tracks. And of course, they were influential to the 9-11 Commission, and as I already mentioned, some were directly involved with both of NIST's reports. Conflict of interest? I think so. Throughout the whole entire extravaganza, it's plain as day. So now we have to talk about how these people were able to get the explosive materials inside the buildings. Because keep in mind, these buildings had security with bomb-sniffing dogs. Bomb-sniffing dogs that someone ordered to be removed from the towers in the weeks, if not days, prior to the attacks. But let's bring it back to Building 7. First, who were the tenants in Building 7? The first six floors belonged to Solomon Smith Barney, all financial institutions which merged. Who was the chairman of Solomon Smith Barney? It was Donald Rumsfeld who held that position until he resigned after September 11, 2001, so he could be sworn in as Secretary of Defense, where he went on to carry out more mass murder in the Middle East. And guess what? That piece of shit publicly denied even knowing that Building 7 existed when asked about it after 9-11 happened. That's so crazy. He's like, oh, what, what, what even, I don't even know about Building 7. What, what are you talking about? Yeah, no idea. <laughs> building 7? What, what do you mean? Yeah. I don't know what that is. Are you fucking kidding me? You fucking <laughs> asshole. Anyway, Floor 7 and 8 belong to American Express Bank International with the Secret Service sharing Floor 7. Floors 9 and 10 house the Secret Service. Floors 11 through 13 with the Securities and Exchange Commission. Floors 14 through 17 are listed as unknown or not listed at all. Many say that these were mechanical rooms, but seeing who the tenants in this building were, it's not hard to deduce a general idea of who occupied those floors. Floors 18 through 24, again, house Solomon Smith Barney. But also on floor 19 was the National Association of Insurance Commissioner Securities. And on floor 23 was also the New York Office of Emergency Management. Floors 24 and 25 belong to the Department of Defense, the IRS Regional Council, and the CIA. Again, floors 26 to 47 were Solomon Smith Barney, with some other financial institutions sprinkled in to give it balance. So those are some heavy hitters, like all of them. And you have to think like, okay, we're dealing with a government made of spies, right? We're talking about a government full of CIA. We can only assume that there were other agencies in these buildings that we just don't know about and that they didn't list them in the public records, right? Like they wouldn't tell us everything. They never do because they hide behind their issue of national security tagline as well as their idea of plausible deniability. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's plenty of things that all we can ever do is guess at. We'll never know exactly how deep it goes or how deep it went. But the more we have these discussions, the more we get this stuff out there, the more likely we're going to turn over the right stone and find out some things that everybody needs to know. Hopefully, eventually, like all of this stuff does come out, like passed down from ancestors or I don't know, found in secret rooms and hidden abandoned places. I don't even know. But hopefully we can find out the truth eventually. It'll eventually come out. My my thought on it is like once, maybe like 100 years down the road or whatever, once everybody even remotely like down the line, this stuff will come out. 
slowly but surely, you'll be like, yeah, it was inside job. Yeah, the government did that. But that's when they already have full control over us. That's going to be when we're like are so fucking repressed. That's when they're going to give the information. You know, it's like, oh, by the way, we did this and you guys can't do anything about it now. Exactly. You know what I mean? Following the 93 attack, Guli Guliani moved the Office of Emergency Management to the 23rd floor for reasons that didn't make a whole lot of sense to a lot of people. But what's interesting to note is that the entire floor received $15 million in renovations. That's a lot of money to put into something when, as we'll see, was just abandoned when the time came to deal with an emergency for which the entire floor and those renovations were specifically meant to deal with. You know, Guli Guliani just got up and just bounced. He's abandoned the whole place. Like, I'm out of here. <laughs> What's also pretty interesting is that on 9-11, Guli Guliani would abandon this highly fortified floor to set up a base of operations only a handful of blocks away down at the harbor. Now, that's not the really interesting part. The really interesting part is that this base of operations was a FEMA command center that was set up the night before on September 10th, as if they were preparing for a disaster to happen the following day. There were numerous eyewitnesses to this command center being set up the day before, as you would imagine they would in, you know, being in a place as large as New York with as many people as there are. So again, there was obviously foreknowledge of the attack. And I won't even get into the van of what witnesses said to be Middle Eastern men with cameras set up toward the towers prior to the planes hitting them on the morning of September 11th, who then began to dance after the planes hit. These guys are known as the dancing men. It's important to note that explosive residue was found inside the back of this van, but despite all of that, the men were released and not investigated any further. And actually, on a side note, albeit a humorous one, if anybody wants to see a reenactment of the dancing men, uh, you can just contact me privately, um, just at your leisure. But uh, yeah, I'll be available, so hit me up. It's on OnlyFans. I was going to say, it's actually his OnlyFans account, and it's not free of charge. You're going to have to pay to see that. That's true. That's true. It's payment payment only. Uh, the dancing men. Oh, well, dancing man. <laughs> uh, mm, debatable. <laughs> uh, yeah. It, it's by subscription, yes. not payment. Subscribe. Yeah. Exactly. You got to subscribe to that. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's true. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, if you want to send a tip to my personal address. Well, anyways, there's time for that at the end of the show. Email us, but, uh, and uh, we can set you up to his OnlyFans account. So Yeah, OnlyMans. <laughs> All right, now, how exactly was this thermite applied to Building 7 and to Towers 1 and 2? We have an idea of how it could have been brought in, but how could it have been applied? Um, okay, well, I'm going to go with the obvious paint and paint rollers you know what i mean just rolling it on on the inside i mean i i did mention that there's there some companies yeah that dealt with exactly, paint exactly. and thermite so shy what about you did they get creative did they get creative and like put it in wallpaper like Ooh, just like slapped it on the wall very possible Ooh. that's very possible there's also an idea about the tiles on the ceiling so we'll get into that too ah okay okay yeah didn't think about that. Well, yeah, let's let's think about this for a second, okay? So how many of these companies that I listed a little while ago were defense contractors with a direct connection to making and utilizing military-grade thermite? Pretty much like all of them. And of those that didn't work directly with thermite, how many of them worked in close partnership with those companies that did? Uh, I'm going to say 70%. Shy? I'd say 75. Well, both of those are great answers. But the factual answer is all of them. 
Now, if you are one to think that people of a certain financial class don't rub elbows when they're not rubbing each other's dicks, then you're hiding behind something called cognitive dissonance. Think about it. Look at these companies and look at who sits on their boards. They all have each other's phone numbers. They all do business together and business is money, which is all they care about. This country is a network of corporations. We all know that. I think we all understand that corporations are the financial backers of everything in this country. They run everything. Now, here's something really interesting. Building 7 also housed offices where files on Enron and WorldCom were being kept while they were under some serious investigations. And if you recall Enron and that whole insider training corrupt shit, then you remember that the company was well in debt and its founder, Kenneth Lay, did a great job to muddle his accounting. Well, for a while. That is until he was caught and eventually convicted of numerous crimes relating to the company. WorldCom was another financial company, much like Enron, and they were eventually forced to admit that their accountants had overstated their assets by around $11 million. Its CEO was Bernard Ebers, and he would be sentenced to 25 years to life for his major part in that scandal. So all of the documents and files relating to those investigations were housed in building number seven. And so when the building was demolished using carefully placed explosives, all of those files and documents went down with it effectively ending any further investigations into where all of that money went. Pretty fucking convenient, right? Sure. But again, it was just another miraculous coincidence. Oh, yeah. Bunch of these guys getting away with crimes while the American public is being redirected. Definitely a coincidence. Definitely. Moving on. If you recall, I mentioned soul gel technology that was used to develop and perfect military-grade nanothermite by Raytheon and Savannah River with Lawrence Livermore Labs under the head of the Washington Group. Again, these people were rubbing elbows and dicks with Donald Rumsfeld and probably still are with Dick Cheney and everyone over there at Halliburton and the Carlyle Group and the entire Bush regime. And like every other crime family regime, they're all part of the same bloodline but form these rivalries within each of their immediate families even though they're all one and the same. It's just like any other family with their infighting and all of that shit. But yeah, they're all from the Rothschilds family line which appears to be the domineering force behind everything that happens. And you bet your clenched butt cheeks that we'll be doing an episode or two or three or four on the Rothschilds because yeah, they are behind everything. It's really fucking crazy. Just imagining getting some sort of like pass to one of these government functions and everyone's actually rubbing dicks with each other (laughs) and i'm like damn it get over here bob damn it coop like why did this have to be real i just wanted to see how the government works not rub dicks with people they just rub dicks man okay and i'm over here thinking like i'm a female like what is it like to rub dicks with somebody (laughs) 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 well as a female you guys rub clicks yeah but it's, it's not the same because that's scissoring, and that's it. Yeah. You guys have to get down on the floor and shit and scissor. Like, we can just stand up and be like, how's it going, Bob? How you doing? It just makes you, I mean, do they shake? Is, yeah. is, there, like an, is there like an intertwining? That's how they greet you know? each other. They walk up to yep. each other and just rub dicks. Like, most people shake hands. No, they just rub they dicks. Slap. Yeah. They slap their dicks. So imagine, imagine a couple of just, like, thick cords just kind of, just coming together and like coiling around each other instantly in like a familial kind of way. So they're like uh, prehensile or whatever. Yeah, exactly. A couple of elephant trunks <laughs> <laughs> sliding, sliding into a firm grasp. And they're like, "Yeah, yep. you're you're part of this crowd." Damn it, Bob! Let go! Let go! <laughs> it's too too tight. Bob, I said, yeah. Hey, you're lingering. <laughs> 
God, I hate rubbing dicks, but Sam is <laughs> yeah. such a lingerer. He does that yeah. thing where he like tickles the tickles the palm of your dick <laughs> with the second dick or whatever. You know when you shake hands with someone and you use your middle finger to, like do that. Oh, thing I hate that. Yeah, uh, gotcha, gotcha. He's got a shocker on his dick. Oh, what about like the pierced ones, like getting stuck together, like braces? You know. <laughs> Oof. Oh man. Oof. Let go, Sam. I can't, Bob. Yeah, like, ow, 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 ow. Uh, we're demoting them to CEOs. <laughs> well, let's get back to the story here. These companies had developed a paint-on thermite. That is, a thermite that has a consistency of paint, which can be applied to any surface with any variant thickness desired. So the following theory has been postulated by a man named Jim Hoffman, who wrote an essay called a plausible theory explaining the controlled demolition of the Twin Towers using aluminothermic incendiaries and explosives with wireless ignition means. That was the title. That's a big title. It's a big fucking title. Anyway, he gives the synopsis on how the operation could have been accomplished in the World Trade Center office buildings where thousands of people walked about as they went about their day. After explaining what materials were likely used, he says, quote, the scenario allows all of the equipment installation to be disguised so that the very workers doing the installation work are oblivious to the fact that they are all installing demolition equipment. None of the equipment looks anything like conventional demolition gear, and there is a fully plausible, innocent explanation for each procedure. There are no wires connecting components. Even on close examination, the equipment would not reveal its true purpose. If a worker were to break open a ceiling tile and find the nanothermite film layer, his supervisor would explain what he was told, that the new energy-sufficient tiles have an embedded vapor and radiative heat loss barrier. The labor-intensive portions of the operation might be made more secure by using undocumented workers who are naturally disinclined to raise questions about the work, end quote. So right there, he's got a great point on all of it, right? So basically what you do is you would contract out whatever work needed to be done. The contractors who came to bid on the job would have no idea about anything other than this normal sounding job you're offering them to, you know, paint walls and ceilings and install tiles or whatever it is. These are just normal looking jobs as far as these contractors were aware. Then you tell them that you are providing all of the materials for the job to be done and you would find laborers who really needed work and you knew wouldn't ask questions. You choose those people who would just do the job you told them to do and shut up. When the job is done, they get paid, and in the case of undocumented workers, would work great because whoever was pulling the strings would make sure that those undocumented workers would be sent back to the country as far away from the situation as possible. So what's the next part that Jim Hoffman said? Quote, the only part of the installation work that requires direct access to steelwork is the application of the thermite coating compound and the attachment of high temperature igniters to the coated areas. Because this treatment is applied only to steelwork in the core around the planned crash zone and the hatch rust. The number of access points is relatively small and can be reached almost entirely through parts of the building controlled by building services. The use of a spray applicator with a flexible snake hose and integrated boroscope allows a worker to treat an entire section of column walled off by sheetrock by drilling a few two-inch diameter holes in the sheetrock, perhaps above the level of the ceiling tiles. Such efforts to make the work inconspicuous are hardly critical given that the work is supposedly to upgrade fire protection of the steelwork. And if anyone asks, the igniters are vibration detectors used to monitor the structure's performance in high winds. The replacement of ceiling tiles throughout the buildings may have been done on any number of schedules. 
On one hand, the tiles could have been supplied as part of a maintenance contract and installed using an existing building maintenance staff doing what they thought of as normal building maintenance work. Since the new landlord had just taken over in late July of 2001, it wouldn't seem at all unusual to see some refurbishing, especially as unobtrusive as swapping out old ceiling tiles. Alternatively, the tiles could have been installed during overnight hours by a team of maintenance workers unnoticed by tenants. The logistics of such an operation can be imagined, and some estimates of human resources made. We know that the towers had only two types of ceiling tiles, 20-inch squares for the tenant spaces and 12-inch squares for the core spaces. An estimate of the number of tiles per tower is roughly 1.2 million large tiles and 800,000 small tiles. The new ceiling tiles with embedded thin film explosives and wireless detonators are installed throughout every other floor of the tower. In all, each tower gets 500,000 of the large tiles and 400,000 of the small tiles. With workers swapping in new tiles at an average rate of two tiles per minute per worker, it takes a team of 40 workers 187 hours to retrofit an entire tower. The work is performed in three weeks and weekends of night shifts, emptying one truckload per night, with the truck parking inconspicuously in the World Trade Center subterranean parking garage. The remaining equipment is installed with a minimum of effort. The 20-channel repeaters are installed in communication equipment closets on each floor having the ceiling tile retrofits and on floors having treated steelwork and kicker chargers. The repeaters are cabled to existing Ethernet ports through which they can receive encrypted instructions. The kicker chargers are mounted in closets and elevator shafts, generally just above portions of the structure that have been treated with the thermite coating compound. And that's pretty much how they accomplished it. It sounds complicated, but in the scheme of things, you're just doing some basically quote-unquote normal upgrades to buildings. This is typical work. The, the materials have just been replaced with something more nefarious. It's definitely, I mean, if you disguise it, if there are ways, like there's no way anybody would ever know. I mean, without the tests after the fact, it's just so well, so cleverly hidden that you just would never, ever in a million years think like, oh, look at that guy. He's just installing some ceiling tiles over there, and they're blowing in some insulation into the walls. Like, you'd have no idea. Yeah. It'd be so easy. And so many people out so there easy. are like, that's just way too, that's too complicated. The government would never be able to, like, organize this to happen and keep it a secret. But it's like, it wouldn't be that hard. Like, this guy laid it out. This guy I just read about, he just laid it out how they could have done it very inconspicuously, you know? Exactly. And another point on that, um, when people are like, oh, the government flew twin tower, flew airplanes into twin towers. Condoleezza Rice went on air and said, oh, the government could never think of that. We could never have thought of that. Are you fucking serious? <laughs> when on the same day as 9-11, they were carrying out <laughs> drills of the same attacks. The government. Right. You know, but we could never have thought of that, really, because you're doing the same drill on the same day. What, what are you talking about? You could never have thought of that. So insane. And there are, in fact, many, many firsthand accounts of employees attesting to the fact that whole floors would be closed off for a night, and the next night it would be a few more above those ones, and so on. And these people doing the work looked like regular workers doing the job that they were doing. It was done so well that nobody questioned why they were there, and that is precisely because the people doing the actual work, they didn't even know what they were doing. They just thought that they were painting ceilings and walls and installing tiles and running wires and cables. And Towers 1 and 2 had at least one entire floor that was nothing but computer systems. Very powerful computer systems. What raises a few eyebrows about that is that the North Tower's computer floor was on the 95th floor. Right where Flight 11 flew into. 
And on the south tower, the computer floor was on the 81st floor, which is right where Flight 175 flew into. So that's kind of weird, don't you think? Super weird. And many believe that these computer floors were paramount in the attacks in that they acted as a beacon of which each plane locked onto and flew right into it, you know? And while I'm not going to say it was one way or the other, I do find it rather odd that massive computer systems were in the exact areas where these upgrades and renovations and general construction were being done in the years and months preceding the attack. It's just really coincidental. Yeah, too coincidental. And I also find it quite odd that in the days prior to the attack, there were some power outages going on at the World Trade Center complex. In one instance, the power was out in the top half of the South Tower for up to 36 hours over the weekend of September 8th and the 9th of 2001. Way back in the day, I remember reading an article about such power outages, but of course, news stories about these power outages have been scrubbed from the internet, but I was able to use the Wayback Machine and find an article about it by Craig McKee. Scott Forbes, who was a senior database administrator in the South Tower, Forbes said that all of the security cameras and the security door locks were non-operational for about 36 hours. He remarked on how unusual it was for him to see so many strangers coming in and out of the World Trade Center, including how so many of these guys were bringing in huge toolboxes and massive reels of cable without any security measures at a time when there was heightened security due to alleged phone threats. So fishy. So you have these people that are there, right, for, you know, just they're there all the time. And they're saying that leading up, there's people they don't recognize, yeah. strange happenings, power outages, lack of security, a little bit too convenient. Mm -hmm. And again, this stuff was scrubbed from the internet. And in the days prior to the attack, the extra security that had been placed at the towers, including the bomb-sniffing dogs, were removed. They were apparently removed on September 6th. This is just coincidence stacked on top of coincidence stacked on top of more coincidences already stacked on top of other stacks of other stacked coincidences which is simply astronomically impossible <laughs> yeah like winning the lottery no just i don't know <laughs> yeah and all right so on september 13th 2001 just two days after the attack Engineering News Record, which reports on the construction industry, reported that LVI Services Incorporated in New York City worked in the towers in the past and was involved in similar efforts at the time of the attack. The LVI president, Burton T. Freed, lied about it and said that they did not do any work, even though there are records that show that LVI did in fact do the work. But going off of his lie, he named another company called AASI, which he said went out of business. Therefore, records can't be obtained, which, again, well, is just another coincidence and yet another convenience for so many people involved. Another demolition company involved in the World Trade Center building prior to the attack was called Controlled Demolition Incorporated, or CDI, which is based out of Phoenix, Maryland, and headed by a man named Mark Lazau. First, what is the LVI company? It's a large demolition company who partnered up with another demolition company, NCM Group, to create Northstar, which is touted as being one of the world's largest demolition companies. Okay. With you so far, handling a lot of demolition. Lots of demolition here. Interesting bit here. When LVI was doing work on the World Trade Center Towers, they had armed guards standing at the elevators, making sure people would not pass by their barricades. Whoa. Yeah. Why, why, why? Why, indeed. That's just uh, seems like a little bit overkill. You think right? so? I mean, they're just doing some some repair work on the elevators. Yeah, and you got armed guards. Come on, yeah, what's really going on there? 
So, and it's a private company. Like they, <laughs> the government's not even involved, or technically not even involved in the company. It's a, they have their own security with their own weapons. Like it's pretty crazy. And so I guess we more or less have an idea of how thermite in any of its forms, as well as other explosive materials and their counterparts, had somehow gotten lost over on 59th and Central Park and somehow ended up on every ceiling, every beam, every column, and whatever other structural support in both towers. So I think we'll touch on one last bit here. Who was head of security at World Trade Center? Oh, I'm going to guess Bush's brother. Well, it's said that Marvin Bush brother of George W. Bush, oh. was head of security at both World Trade Center and and Dulles International Airport. But he wasn't the head of operations. Whoa. So good guess. Dang. Thanks, man. I'm going to buy a lottery ticket. You probably should. I'm going to record that dancing man. <laughs> oh, man. That one's for the ladies. <laughs> oh, okay. Good save. Good save. <laughs> He was, although, this Marvin Bush, a principal partner in the company between 1993 and 2000. Marvin acted as its director, but another guy named Wirt Dexter Walker III was its CEO. Who was Wirt Walker? Well, Wirt Walker is a relative of the Bush family and is as slimy of a person as anyone and everyone else in that family. So, who is or was Wirt Walker? He came from an affluent family, a family with financial ties to all sorts of investment companies and other ties to securities companies and other ties to political figures and other ties to foreign affiliates and other ties to the CIA and more ties to other governmental agencies. By 1983, Wirt was the director of the Kuam Company. Kuam is a Kuwait American investment company. So Stratasec started in 1987 as Burns and Rowe Securicom which was founded by Sebastian Cassetta, who was the assistant to Nelson Rockefeller. When Kuam took over Stratasec in 1992, it changed its name to Securicom, and by that time, it was Wirt Walker who became its CEO. At any rate, Wirt, Wirt Walker III is a pretty shitty human being. He was involved in a massive bank fraud case in which he came out unscathed, of course, while those lower in the hierarchy took the fall, which is how these assholes operate. He was basically a CIA agent who also worked with the DIA, the Department of Internal Affairs. Wirt was also a chairman and CEO of an aircraft company, Aviation General, which was about 70% owned by Kuam. More revolving doors. Man, multiple CEOs and multiple companies. It's like so ridiculous. Yeah, and get this. Stratasec had a contract which ended on September 11th, 2001. Securicom had acquired an $8.3 million World Trade Center contract back in October of 1996, according to SEC filings, which is the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, which, if you remember, was a tenant in building number seven. Hmm. Now, this company was providing security at the World Trade Center, and guess where else? At Dulles International Airport. And... United Airlines, both being airports that had planes hijacked on that day. Mm. Yeah. An American Airlines Flight 11 departed Logan International in Boston, which struck Tower 1. United Airlines Flight 175 also departed from Logan, which struck Tower 2. United Airlines Flight 93 departed from Newark International, New Jersey, and crashed in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. And American Airlines Flight 77 departed Dulles International and struck the Pentagon. All verified information. Their contract with Dulles and United Airlines began in 1995 and ended in 2001, 
just like the World Chase Center contract. Right on the precipice of this huge event. Weird. Coincidence? Hmm. I, I think, think not. not. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the company, Securicom, was financially backed by a Kuwait American corporation that the Bushes are closely tied to. Totally rubbing dicks and doing some extreme docking. And that fact goes as far back as the Gulf War with Papa Bush. Lots of docking going on. Extreme docking. Extreme docking. Yeah. <laughs> Elephant style. But, oh, I want to know the difference between just regular docking and extreme docking. I don't want to know. I probably don't, yeah. Now, Stratasex says they now have, quote, an open-ended contract with the General Service Administration and a blanket purchase agreement with the agency that allows the government to purchase materials and services from the company without having to go through a full competition, end quote. The company promotes its services to clients such as the Armed Services and Department of Justice for projects that, quote, often require state-of-the-art security solutions for classified or high-risk government sites, end quote. After the attack, the FBI and other agencies questioned if Stratasec and their security work had anything to do with the attack on 9-11, but CEO Barry McDaniel gave an emphatic no. First of all, what would you say? FBI comes in. Yeah. Hey, hey Scott, you, uh, you have anything to do with that 9-11 stuff? Yeah, what are you going to say? Like, wow, I sure did. I sure did. <laughs> that was all me. That was, yeah, yeah, I'm right here. I'm the guy. No. Yeah. Probably wouldn't be nope. saying that. I'd probably be like, hey, no. man, want to dock? Yeah, I would say, well, sir, let's do a little docking, and then I'm going to give you an emphatic no. Tell you what, let's start by rubbing elbows. We'll see uh, how it progresses. Yeah, yeah. And now Barry McDaniel, he had been CEO of Stratasec since 2002, but would obviously not give any details about the work that he and his company did at the World Trade Center. But he did say that the, quote, completion contract, end quote, his company had with World Trade Center Complex was not quite completed when the center went down. So clearly, he lied to the FBI. He went on to say that they designed a system for the security at the World Trade Center, but while he was speaking about not having anything to do with the attack, he was almost too giddy when he said that this system, quote-unquote, didn't have anything to do with planes flying into buildings. So on one hand, you're straight up lying to the FBI saying that you didn't do any work, and then on the other hand, you're like, oh yeah, but we didn't finish our contract. Right? Like what? Yeah, like... That's not suspicious. Yeah, and, and why the FBI was, or anyone wasn't like, well, why did you lie? And you're lying about a big thing to a government agency. I mean, that, I think that's a felony Pretty in sure. itself. In a criminal yeah, investigation, I think that's a felony. In, in any kind of right. court situation at all. Well, I guess they didn't bring me. a Bible out and have him swear on it, right? Yeah, he's like, he I had my fingers crossed <laughs> by my back. It was, it was a Bible on the outside and blank paper yeah. on the inside. Shell Bible. So what about Barry McDaniel? Well, he actually went to Securicom after leaving BDM International, a subsidiary of the Carlyle Group. And this company specialized in black projects, meaning that they are projects not known to anyone outside of their very tight crew and are often highly illegal and deadly. The Carlyle Group was managed by many members of the Bush Cabal, including the former deputy director of the CIA, Frank Carlucci. Who was the Carlisle Group funded by? Are you asking that question? Well, I'm going to tell you. Not to get too deep into it here, but it was funded by many close associates of the Bush crime family, including the Bin Laden family. Yes, that's right. It was funded in part, but to a very great degree, 
by the family of Osama bin Laden. And we all know by now that Osama bin Laden was a paid CIA agent. The Bush and bin Laden families go way back and have been great friends and partners since at least the 1950s. Osama's older brother had a construction firm that Papa Bush did some dirty business dealings with, not to mention oil. And before going to BDM, Barry McDaniel worked as a military ordnance distributor at Fort Belvoir, meaning that he worked closely with explosives and business dealings within the military. The company should have been BDSM. They just should have. <laughs> that is exactly the only I thing I could think to. I'm terrible. That's like, the I only just... thing I could think of was just was like, like you're missing missed the opportunity. <laughs> like, you're missing the S. It's hard. That's the first thing that I, I think about when I'm reading it. I almost want to say BDSM because it's it, I've said that way more than BDM. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's BDSM. Like My mind just hyper-focused no on it, and I just couldn't think yeah. of anything worthwhile to say. So Well, I think that Barry McDaniel had a BDSM relationship with in the military. <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's his explosives business dealings. Tie me up with that cordite. Come on. Paint me with thermite. <laughs> like your French girls. Mm. Anyways. But as we've mentioned, Stratasec and Securicom had security contracts for not only the World Trade Center complex, but for United Airlines and also Vadulis International Airport before, during, and after the attack. Wayne Black, the head of a Florida-based security company, was asked about the security at Dulles after the attack. Wayne had not heard of Stratasec, but he found it highly unusual well, extremely unusual, that a single company, Stratasec, would handle security for two airports, American Airlines, and the World Trade Center. He thought that was pretty strange, to say the least, because that isn't how these companies typically operate. He found it odd for a security firm that served international facilities to be so interlinked with a foreign-owned company. Speaking of the Kuwaiti connection, he went on to say, quote, somebody knew somebody or else the contract would have been more closely scrutinized, end quote. Black went on to say, When you have a security contract, you know the inner workings of everything, and if another company is linked with the security company, then what's on your computer is on their computer. And FAA Special Agent Brian F. Sullivan would pretty much add on to that with the following. Quote, You can have all the security systems in the world, but the people behind the systems make the difference. End quote. He pointed out a crucial fact, too. The fact was that not a single upper-level position within the government, such as the FBI, CIA, FAA, DOT, or whatever alphabet agency it may be, not a single person lost their job as a result of the 9-11 attack. So nobody fucked up? Yeah. Well, the lower people, <laughs> the people without the money and influence, they took whatever fall they lost job positions i know just they to make things seem legit things came out in the aftermath immediately about like oh well we had more intel there was more security like the government was too late to act but no one took the fall for it yeah i mean no one really took the fall crazy there right? were these small little like points of contention that the media almost like had to put out to make it look like things are being done to make it look like there was investigations happening you know but it was all just for show yeah also, Stratasec, or Securicom, they had a contract with Los Alamos National Laboratories, which had been notorious for security breaches and physical and intellectual property thefts. The company also lists a few government clients, the U.S. Army, U.S. Navy, U.S. Air Force, and the Department of Justice. Oh, and Los Alamos National Laboratories was developing super thermite at the time of the 9-11 attack. 
dust of which had been found in massive quantities all over the demolition site, all over the entire World Trade Center complex. Barry McDaniel confirmed that Securicom Stratasec had security contracts for those companies or entities or government institutions, but would not comment on the details of the nature of their work on the World Trade Center or the airports or the airlines or anything else. Securicom Stratasec has a line with the General Services Administration, which means that any bids for contracts that these companies give out to do any sort of work on their properties and whatnot are non-competitive, meaning no matter what, they get the contracts despite bids from other companies that offer a much higher bid to do the job, simply because they don't have some sort of control over those companies. So this is what they do. These people with the money and the sway, the shakers and movers, they create these bidding companies and they place who they want on the boards of those companies and they finance them and have complete control over them. So when they say they are putting out these bids for work to be done, it's just to make it appear that they are being fair and transparent but they're not being fair and transparent because it's their own tentacle companies that quote unquote get the contracts. It's not complicated. This is what the CIA and double agents do all of the time. They've done it forever, which does not justify it, but this is what they do and people need to understand that. So just think, just think about that for a moment. Going to let it stew. Going to marinate in that corruption for a brief second here. And there's another company. HCC Insurance Holdings Incorporated, which is a reinsurance corporation. What is reinsurance? Reinsurance occurs when multiple insurance companies share risk by purchasing insurance policies from other insurers to limit their own total loss in case of disaster. A Ponzi scheme, in other words. Yeah, man. Pretty much a Ponzi scheme. So who was on the board at HCC? Marvin Bush, of course. He was the director until November of 2002. His older bro, Georgie, decided that his administration would oppose an independent commission to investigate 9-11 after they issued their fictional account of what happened on that day, the 9-11 commission report. These assholes even interfered in lawsuits against United Airlines in New York that were brought by relatives of some of the victims. They actively stood by United Airlines while shitting all over the victims. And I think we all know why by now. Marvin Bush was also on the board of Kuam, the Kuwait American Investment Company. Another board member is or was a Kuwaiti man named Youssef Saad Al Sabah, who was actually the chairman of the company. But guess what, guys? What? What? Whoa! What? what man? What could it possibly be? Well, he also sat as a director on the board of Securicom Stratasec. Ugh. Womp womp. Hmm. Yeah. Securicom Stratasec has always taken pride at being a single source provider of all things security, including overtaking existing systems and hiring subcontractors to install video and electronic equipment. It also provides armored vehicles and security cards. After the 1993 attack on World Trade Center Tower 1, the World Trade Center and Port Authority began that multi-million dollar, multi-year renovation project in and around World Trade Center, including providing their security services. Of course, Securicom Stratasec was among many other contractors hired to carry out these upgrades and improvements, but here is what is important about that. All of the companies who took part in those improvements were given notable mention in numerous publications. That is, all but the fact that the son of a former president, George H.W. Bush, Daddy Bush, Papa Bush, was on the board of more than one of those contractors. Now, you'd think that that would be a very notable mention to make during the times, you know? the son of a president. But no, no mention anywhere that old Georgie sat on any of those boards. So anyway, 
Brian F. Sullivan pointed out that the alleged hijackers seemed to know exactly how to bypass the security at each of the airports. The obvious question was, how could the hijackers have known how to bypass security so flawlessly? Well, between 1993 and 1999, QAM, of which Baby Bush was on his board, was pretty much interested in Securicom Stratasec. And in 1996, the corporation owned 90% of Securicom, either through direct ownership or through partnerships such as one called the Special Situations Investment Holdings and another called Fifth Floor Company for General Trading and Contracting. In 1998, they owned 31% of Securicom and 40% of Stratasec. The largest holder of stock in Securicom, the largest holder of stock in Stratasec, was none other than Wirt Walker, QAM's managing director and spawning from the Bush family. So let's just go over that a bit. Stratasec and QAM were and still are at the top. Walker, while at Stratasec, has been a director since 1987, a chairman of the board since 1992 and a former CEO since 1999. He was also on the board of directors at QAM and has been a managing director since 1982. Mishal Yusuf Saad Al-Sabah, the chairman of QAM, also served on Stratasec's board from 1991 until 2001. Walker and Al-Sabah had major stock holdings in each other's companies, if you can believe. The sons of both men also held a lot of shares in the two companies, effectively ensuring full control. It's almost needless to say, as I suspect most people would presume, Marvin Bush, Barry McDaniel, and anyone else involved in this crime of the century have never responded to any questions, comments, or anything else relating to their part in the systematic attack on Americans, despite being, in nothing, if nothing else, blatantly responsible for the security breaches at the airports. Never commented. And no one ever was, like, you know, compelled it to happen. They just, like, could not be reached for comment. Yeah. And then that's where it was left. Like, that's so insane to me. I know, man. And if authorities wanted any one of us to like, we want to ask you questions about something. It's like, if you don't, then they're just going to arrest you. Right. But like these guys, they're not compelled to take responsibility for anything. I mean, even freaking Oprah brought that dude who wrote a million little pieces, which was all one giant lie. Yeah. Back onto the Oprah show so he could basically admit to her viewers that he lied when he wrote yeah, the book. Right. And th- and that was that. I mean, was this a is book. like, this is so much. Well, it's not much worse, but this is like so much worse. I'm just kidding. Jokes. Get them Jokes. on Oprah. Oh, Get them on Oprah. Get them on Oprah. Well, yeah. No. Yeah. Where was Oprah? Oprah is definitely involved in a lot of fucked up shit. Um, she actually doesn't even do her show anymore because of fucked of up course. shit. Same with, uh, um, what's her name? Uh, Ellen DeGeneres. Ellen DeGeneres. Yeah, she's a psycho she bitch. Got cu- she got caught up in a lot of shit, and it wasn't because she was mean to her staff members. That was, that was the cover-up of why she quit her job or stopped doing the show. There were some more sinister things, reasons behind her quitting the show. Anyway, so before we close this out, I think this is something to mention. ICTS International is a Dutch firm that provides consulting and personal services in the field of aviation and security. It is actually only Dutch in name, as it is mostly comprised of Israeli secret police and the Israeli army. It was created in 1982 by former members of the Shin Bet. And who are the Shin Bet? They are the Internal Security Agency of Israel. They're essentially the Mossad. ICTS and its subsidiaries specialize in aviation security services operating airport checkpoints and electronic equipment such as x-ray screening, manual screening, and verifying travel documents. 
The chairman of the ICTS is or was an Israeli man named Menachem J. Otzman, and its owner was Ezra Harel, who was balls deep in the Mossad, or the Mossad was balls deep in him, or both. But prior to September 11, 2001, like a handful of years maybe, Menachem Otzman was convicted in Israel for what would be the equivalent to money laundering in the United States. So after he was convicted of that pretty serious crime, the U.S. government then allowed him and his far-right Israeli partners to enter into the U.S. where they set up a stock security scam on the NASDAQ, which defrauded American investors. Then they purchased the Huntley Airport Security Company that held the contract to guard Boston's Logan Airport. But again, who cares about any of that, right? Yeah, what? These fraudulent fools or had control of like this major throughway airport nah not a big deal yeah, i'm sure they i'm that's... sure they ran it justly oh they're very honest trustworthy people <laughs> yeah very, totally very honest, honest trustworthy. and we know that menachem asman was well connected to Mossad, israel cia which in turn has well connected ties to the united states cia obviously and in those connections was a man named Shaul Eisenberg, who, back in the 1980s, tried to get the security contract for the World Trade Center complex through his Mossad-connected company, Atwell Security of Tel Aviv. He was unable to obtain that contract at that time. And really quick, just a couple interesting nuggets of information here. ICTS was also responsible for the security at the Paris airport where Richard Reed, the alleged shoe bomber, had boarded his plane in December of 2001, just a few months after 9-11. They were also responsible for the 2009 security, which allowed the underwear bomber, or Umar Farouk al-Najiri, to get through their checkpoints. So we, we put all this security into place and still let all these people through? Like, it's no big deal. But you can't yeah. take over, what, three ounces? Don't you yep. dare. Better leave, those, ounces. better leave those eye drops, you know? <laughs> exactly, man. And I'll finish this out with a little quote from famed 19th century German philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer. Quote, All truth passes through three stages. First, it is ridiculed. Second, it is violently opposed. Third, it is accepted as being self-evident. End quote. And that's the case with so many of what we now, like so much of what we now accept, including even like the history of human civilization just in general. Or oppression or the moving of peoples from one place to another forcibly it's accepted now at the time it was like yeah mm -hmm. you know but that's my commentary on it oh definitely they just changed christopher columbus day to indigenous person day i mean it took them that long to realize like yeah he was a they, total douche christopher columbus was an asshole and doesn't deserve his own day He's kind of a douche <laughs> But yeah, I mean, we're living in some very strange times, and while that has been the trope for every generation, I mean, it's never been wrong, like, ever, you know? But with that said, the art of distraction is more powerful now than it's ever been. There is just so much information, misinformation, and disinformation that is constantly being circulated on every platform available, and it makes it extremely difficult to discern what is factual and what is not. And it makes it more difficult when the government has paid opposition going out there on, like, Reddit and wherever else, they're working both sides of the system, you know? And I gave a perfect example of how much the mainstream media is controlled in last week's episode when I mentioned that Snopes and every other fact checker in the mainstream said that, you know, Disney offering a snorkeling trip to Epstein's little St. James Island was false when in actuality it was very true. It was as true then as it is, as it is today as they still offer that same fucking trip to the same island. So 
it's insane that all of those fact checkers wouldn't check the facts, you know? I mean, you just have to look at Disney's own website to see that they still offer that package. All it takes is being at least eight years old and in good health, and you're good to go. Ultimately, everyone just has to do the research and literally everything themselves because we've been lied to since the moment we stepped into a classroom. And the Board of Education is only getting worse and worse. We've become too complacent in a society with so much information right at our fingertips. It's maddening. Anyway, that will be the end of part two of building number seven. And this is only one of many parts to the entire World Trade Center complex cover-up perpetrated by many governments around the world, but hosted here by the U.S. government. Ah, yes. For your daily dose or weekly dose of corruption, sabotage, and distraction. At any rate, please don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to the Paranautica podcast. And give us a five-star rating wherever you can. Follow us at Twitter, at Paranautica. Check out our Facebook. But most importantly, folks, we really urge you to get the word out about the podcast. Go tell people, man. Get it tattooed. Pick an ass cheek. Just go get it branded on you. Just go out there into the streets. Do a one-person flash dance and a rendition of the Basketball Diaries starring Leonardo DiCaprio, our Hollywood favorite doing an extended version of the subway bathroom scene while doing the appropriate gestures to all the right people. Ooh, yeah, wow. You know, well, you know. Really great visuals there. If anyone's familiar with the subway bathroom scene of Basketball Diaries, <laughs> starring everyone's favorite Leonardo DiCaprio. And, well, very awesome. And please go out and, and do that extended version. Yep. Go find someone to elephant trunk with. <laughs> hey, shit. I... I I give tattoos. Got my own two tattoo gun. Contact shot. Hit her up. She'll brand you. I can do like the the Spotify thing, you know, so you like scan it with your phone and it immediately takes you to the Spotify. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like a QR thing. I suggest it. I highly suggest it. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for listening in. And uh, come back next week for something. I don't know what we're doing, but come back.